you bring up the point that some people game the ballot, which is true. Um, you know, I've done that where I have one more spot left. How do I use that spot to the best advantage? And in the past, um, you know, at one point in time, I, I used that spot for Jim Edmonds um, because I felt that he deserved more of a conversation. Um, I decided early on, though, that I was not going to game the ballot and like not vote for Jeter or not vote for Ken Griffey because I wanted to be part of the chorus of acclamation. I wanted to be part of that, you know, groundswell that said, this is a great player. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the best podcast in baseball brought to you by Closets by Design. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould. We're going to try something different here for this podcast, this holiday week podcast, and bring you two discussions, both unabridged, but edited from other episodes or shows. They feature two familiar voices, the voice of the Cardinals, Dan McLaughlin, your play-by-play voice for all the Cardinals games on Fox Sports Midwest and featured on 101 ESPN here in St. Louis. And of course, Kevin Wheeler, who is back now at 1120 AM KMOX. In the first part of the podcast, Dan and I discuss Hall of Fame voting, the ins, outs, rules, ballots, and trends. And in the second, Wheeler and I get into the weeds on negotiations and why the designated hitter in the National League is such a big chip for both sides. While the common theme here may be negotiations, Ultimately, this is an episode about compromise, whether you're voting for the next class to enter Cooperstown or working on a new collective bargaining agreement. Before those two conversations, let me tell you about our sponsor here at the Best Podcast in Baseball. Imagine your home totally organized. Closet by Design of St. Louis can help you get organized with 40% off plus an additional 15% off and now get free installation. Call 1-800-BY-DESIGN today. That's 1-800-BY-D-E-S-I-G-N. Closet by Design of St. Louis, the official sponsor of the Best Podcast in Baseball. And now here's Dan asking me all about the hall. Let's talk it over with Derek Gould as we talk about the upcoming Hall of Fame ballot, which has been mailed out to the voters of the Baseball Writers Association of America, of which Derek was the president at one point and a proud member of, and the beat writer for the St. Louis Cardinals on STL Today and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. As always, Derek, great to catch up with you. How are things going? All right, Dan. Good to hear from you. Congratulations on your Emmy Award. Uh, Well-deserved. Good to hear. I'm I appreciate very that. For you. Thank you. Is very that much. number seventeen? Is that right? Do I no, have right? no, no. It's no. It's just uh, I'm very proud of it, and it's a uh, something that everybody you know in our industry strives for, and um, we work with great people. So I'll leave yeah. it at that. So let's let's talk about, and I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Let Let's yeah, talk no about the the Hall of Fame. Um, mm-hmm. This is something that should be, in my opinion you know, sacred for writers and sacred for Major League Baseball and sacred for those that get the chance to go in. I think you would agree with all that. Um, So I just want to start with this because I think sometimes there's some misconceptions out there and how it works. So who are the actual voters for uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame? The actual voters for the Baseball Hall of Fame are eligible members of the Baseball Writers Association of America uh, and what it takes to be eligible. It it takes a being a member in good standing. It takes 10 um, consecutive years of being in the uh, organization to then qualify for a ballot consideration. Um, And then you have to uh, be active. Um, You have to actively be around the game, either in coverage or in some other, um, in some other capacity. Sure. Uh, you know, so you just have to, they don't want people who were 
you know, 10 years as a baseball rider, um, some of which was on the beat, some of it wasn't. And then having a vote 20 years later when they're not around the game or, um, you know, there, there was, there were some folks who cover golf or cover, um, the Olympics who moved on from baseball. And it was like, well, if you're not actively engaged in covering the game, then let's rethink, um, your active participant in voting on the hall of fame. So, um, the, but the, 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 the basic ones are 10 consecutive years. Um, that's a big thing for a baseball rider. People will probably see that on social media when riders get their 10 years and they, and the first hall of fame ballot shows up. It's a pretty big deal. So how many writers are, are usually on that list to be able to write and eligible under that criteria? That's a great question. Um, you know, it's, it, I want to say, that it's between 300 and 400. I don't know this year's number. Um, I do know that it was just less than 400 last year. So it's a it's a big number. And then when mm-hmm. you when you guys are are putting in your your checks on, and it's literally like you get the ballot and you put a mm-hmm. check mark by. It's not a hanging chad, so let's not go there. And we we've had enough. Well, I, I don't want to. <laughs> we've had enough talking about recounts here. Um, so. You, you yep. put you put your check on the box, uh, clearly le- legible. How many votes do you get for the uh, amount of people that are on the ballot? So, number one, how many are on the ballot, and then how many uh, players do you get to vote for? Um, okay, so real quick, last year there were three hundred and ninety-seven voters. Just to let okay. you know, there were gotcha. three hundred ninety-seven. I looked that up because um, I actually have this year's ballot right here in my hand. Um, how many people are there on the ballot? Correct players. There are 25 on this year's ballot. Um, That number can change um, to be. This is something that is also important is to be eligible for the Hall of Fame ballot. You have to not only be retired for several years, five years, but you also have to have played for 10. So it's like so that's actually something when like people go, well, he's a he's a Hall of Famer or he's a future Hall of Famer. When a player's in year seven of his career, it's like, well, not yet. No. He's not. You have to have 10 years. Um, that's actually a rule for the hall, a minimum of 10 years of uh, playing in the majors. And then, you know, that that number, you know, includes a bunch of different people who can have long careers in there, um, in their, you know, long careers in, in the majors. Uh, and then they're vetted to then get onto the ballot. Um, you uh, so the 25, you can vote for at most 10. You can vote for fewer than 10, but you can vote for no more than 10. And, and, you know, to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, be elected into the Hall of Fame, you uh, must have uh, received 75% of the vote. So last year that was 298 votes. And last year uh, we saw Larry Walker get in. He made an incredible Mm -hmm. jump. When you look at Larry Walker and his trajectory over the time that he was on the ballot, um, if you had to say he got in because of this and he started making a steady climb as it went through uh, the mm-hmm. years, what would you point it to? I, is it sabermetrics? Was it a harder look at the analytics of the game? His all-around performance? Were there lesser players on the ballot? Was it the fact he wasn't a steroid guy? How do you how do you look at his trajectory as, as allowing him to get into the Hall of Fame? Which, by the way, I do think he's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I've always thought he was a Hall of Famer. Um, I have uh, always voted for him too. Uh, I uh, I think there are two things. One is that there was a gradual ease of the ballot, meaning that um, you know that 
you know, a lot of times you could have looked at the ballot over the last few years and gone there 13, 14, 15 deserving people, but I can only vote for 10. And so you saw, um, you know, some guys not get the support because when he, when the hall asks you to vote for 10 and only 10 at most, they're not asking you who are the hall of famers on the ballot. They're asking you who are the worthiest hall of famers on the ballot. And that's a terrible question, but that's what you're left with. And so people would rank however they would rank or come to a decision how they would do that as to how they would get their list of 12 or 13 or 15 you know deserving candidates down to 10 um i think because there was a you know a gradual ease of the candidates and thus you had more room on your 10 um larry walker got more voters i also think a huge part of it is that my generation of writers started voting yeah um, I think that, you know, that people my age and slightly younger started getting ballots. Um, you know, we were 10 years into our careers, 10, 11, 12. Um, we were getting those ballots and how we viewed Larry Walker. Um, also how we approached the Coors field question was, was less, uh, was less of a factor for us than just a great player. Derek, I'm always curious when people say, well, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer, but he wasn't unanimous. Um, and we all know that the the player is definitely a Hall of Famer. Uh, it's a slam dunk, right? He's yeah. going to go in, and yet he doesn't receive a vote or two from one of the voters. Why is that? Is that because they're saving the vote for somebody else, knowing that the other voters are going to vote them in? And they're saying, yeah. I'd rather give it to player X because he's on the fringe and I want to keep him on the ballot or I want to get him in. I, can you explain that to our listeners? I, I cannot because, I mean, I can tell you some of the reasons why. Um, but I can also tell you why I, I think it's a little bit misleading. Um, you know, like Derek Jeter fell one vote short, short. I don't really know of a good reason why you'd leave Derek Jeter off you bring up the point that some people game the ballot, which is true. Um, you know, I've done that where I have one more spot left and it's either going to go to, I didn't want to vote for one guy without voting for three guys. So if I only had one spot left, then how do I use that spot to the best advantage? And in the past, um, you know, at one point in time, I, I used that spot for Jim Edmonds um, because I felt that he deserved more of a conversation. Um, I decided early on, though, that I was not going to game the ballot and like not vote for Jeter or not vote for Ken Griffey because I wanted to be part of the chorus of acclamation. I wanted to be part of that, you know, groundswell that said this is a great player. I do not get hung up on. I'll, I'll ask it. Can I ask you a question, Dan? Oh, sure. OK, so what is the difference between Ted Simmons Hall of Famer and Derek Jeter Hall of Famer? They're both Hall of Famers. Once they're in, they, you're in. They both have a plaque. No one asks how they got there. That's right. No one, no one asks. You know, they're not putting on their, when they sign a card, it's not, you know, Jeter doesn't get to go HOF 99.7. Mm -hmm. uh, and and Ted Simmons doesn't have to go HOF Veterans Committee. Right. It's HOF. That's HOF, right. HOF, it's immortality forever. And no one asks how you got there. And, you know, for some players, it's a long time. For some players, it's, there are players who are posthumous who who didn't get in until after their death, um, but for all players who are in there, they are Hall of Famers, and that title Hall of Famer in you know bestows an immortality that doesn't ask what your vote count was, 
you're just there. And I try to keep that in mind. Um, I know that having gone to the Cooperstown a few times, having talked to Hall of Famers, you know, they see, you know, a few of them see a distinction with the first ballot. Um, but I get that sense that it's less and less um, just in talking with some of the current round of players. Part of that is because of the voting trends. I think, you know, the fact that the players who are in right now all played against Bonds, all played against Clemens, all played against some of these other guys who they probably view as Hall of Famers and aren't yet in there, that it's changed that conversation a little bit as to, you know, yeah, Jeter set records for the you know, are almost um, set records, I guess, um, almost tied a record, I guess I should say, um, for, you know, receiving votes. But the fact that he fell one short doesn't change his career, doesn't change Hall of Fame. It doesn't come with a few, a one fewer vowel or an asterisk. He, he is the Hall of Famer and that's forever. Um, so what people do with their ballots, you're right. I mean, there, there are people who think, well, he's not a first ballot Hall of Famer and thus I will never vote for him on the first ballot. Um, I see less and less of that in voting trends. There are people who game the ballot, like you described. Um, and then there are people who are just a little bit, you know, less, I don't know, they, 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 have, they have less of a motive um, or, or less of a clear-cut motive. And why they do it, they keep to themselves. So you lead me into uh, the next kind of sticky subject here, which is, the steroid guys and Derek Gould of the post dispatch is my guest. And mm -hmm. where do you, where do you stand on this? And it's brought up every year. How do you, how do you look at the steroid guys and, and trying to keep them in out um, the morality clause, all those things, which is part yeah, of this sportsmanship clause, right? Um, yep. Sportsmanship, I should say, um, yep. you know, so where do you stand on some of these guys and whether or not they should be in the hall of fame? Um, I can, uh, would you like to, would you like me to, uh, let's see if I can find the sportsmanship clause here. Um, uh, boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Uh, I was just looking here real quick. This makes for great radio. Um, anyway, um, I, uh, so where I have, when, when, when it became possible that I was going to get a ballot, I knew I had to think about this. Um, and my stance has been. Um, that if I have fewer than 10 who I think are deserving for their careers, then I will vote for all of the players that I think are deserving. If I have more than 10 that I feel are deserving with their careers, then I have to use the tools at my disposal to whittle that list down to 10. One of the tools at my disposal given to me by the Hall of Fame is that sportsmanship clause. Um, I only need to use it you know, you don't need to use a hammer if there's not a you know nail coming out, right? You don't need to use a screwdriver unless the the screw is loosened. But I need to use that tool when I have an excess amount of names to put on a ten person ballot, and so that's when I do. Um, I make the choice to use that tool. My approach has always been that if I can't write an article about it, then I can't vote. The ballot goes with my name on it, just like an article just like a byline. And so if I can't attribute, if I didn't feel comfortable writing something in the newspaper, then I shouldn't feel comfortable professing it on my ballot. This past year was the first time that I voted for Clemens and Bonds. That's because I had spots on my ballot. I had, you know, two, um, I, I had three, I had three spots on my ballot. 
And so uh, I voted for them because, and I had not in the past. Um, I had lopped them off. They, you know, I'd given them consideration, but I had more than um, 12 deserving candidates. So I had to make a call uh, or I had one spot and I didn't want to put one of them over the other. Uh, you know, there is neither of them has has admitted use. Um, Gary Sheffield has discussed his use. Right. Yeah. Um, and so he's in a little bit different category, a tremendous player, a Hall of Fame caliber per, per you know, player um, who. I think deserves consideration. Um, he has he has talked about his use accidental, um, but has been in more detail than the other two. Um, but there is a preponderance of evidence that you cannot ignore. And you could write an article about it. People have written articles. Books have been written about those two. And, you know, I have to respect my colleagues in that way. So those are the standards that I use. Um Wait. Sorry. Well, yeah. well I, I'm also curious then when you have a guy like Kurt Schilling who's mm -hmm. on the ballot, and this is non-steroid issues. Um, right. You know, we're talking about a guy that is um, whether or not you believe in his political beliefs is is kind of divisive. Not kind of. Mm -hmm. He's divisive in that regard. So mm -hmm. whether you believe in it or not, how do you, as a voter or your colleagues, how do you separate? what he's done post-playing career with his um, his political stuff and then just look hard at what he did as a player. And he's at, I think, 70% of the vote mm -hmm. going in. Correct. Which, and his trajectory would then, like most guys, they say, well, if you're at 70, you're probably you're you're, you're going to get yep. in. You're going to get the votes. Yep. So yep. it's really, you know, that's an interesting case study too, I think, with Kurt Schilling. Yeah, so... Kurt Schilling is a is is a difficult personality to deal with, um, but for me, not a difficult vote to deal with. Um, so when I set forth to look at the ballot, um, I found that it was really difficult to distinguish between Kurt Schilling, Mike Mussina, and John Smoltz. Um, I carved up their numbers a bunch of different ways. I looked at them through different lenses. I talked to different people. And more and more, I, I found it hard to differentiate how one of those three was a Hall of Famer and not all of those three, or two of those three were Hall of Famers and not all three. And I continue to look back at that research and go over those numbers, and I continue to arrive at the same thing. Um, my, you know, now, you know, John Smoltz is on TV and people know him well. Um, you know, that's his post career. Mike Mazzina, probably a little quieter, but everybody knows and most people who know Mike Messina are very fond of Mike Messina um, for his character and you know for how he went about it. Um, Kurt Schilling has made noise off the field um, most notably where he appeared to share and promote uh, violence against journalists which is revolting and despicable and dishonest and you know um, just just awful. Um, I find I find it vulgar and unprofessional. And all the words that I use to describe him, he won't get to call me those because I voted for him. And I am going to do with my ballot what he thinks reporters don't. And I'll prove him wrong that way. And I think he's going to get in. Would you agree? Yeah, I think he probably does get in. 
you know, and his speech will be memorable. And I look forward to him having to thank the same journalist that he threatened. I think from a local perspective, a lot of people look at Yadier Molina. And I was thinking about this, um, and I'm very curious, as it pertains to if he went to New York, the amount of media attention and the writers, so many writers are in New York, if that would make some of those guys that if they are on the fringe and gals, if they are on the fringe of looking at him as a Hall of Fame caliber type player, they'd get a couple of years of looking at him hard, looking at the not only the player for the two years, but then looking at the full body of work, the resume of, of his work, if that would enhance or put the final nail in the coffin. I To me, the 2000th hit was it. He's in. But I wonder, Derek, just looking at it from a different perspective, if that would help his cause for the Hall of Fame. I don't, I don't necessarily think so. Um, to be honest, uh, I do understand what you're saying in 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 regards to the number of voters there. So, um, it's sort of a common misconception that there is sort of this East Coast bias when it comes to some of the awards, uh, you know, the MVP, the Cy Young, and everything like that. Well, they have that they don't have any more votes in those cities than we have in St. Louis. You know, New York, you know, is a chapter and has two votes for the National League MVP. St. Louis is a chapter has two votes for the National League MVP. Uh, so, you know, those are definitely more, you know, done by state. They're, they're somewhat to borrow a current phrase, somewhat like the electoral college, right? Gotcha. Um, it's by state, right? Um, the hall of fame is different because you're right. It's scattered and it's not, um, it's, it's, it can be more of a popular vote type of thing. And if there are more long serving baseball riders on the East coast, and there are because they're population centers, um, then you'd see a tilt. However, I will caution people. There are a lot of voters in St. Louis. There are a lot. Um, there are there. It, it St. Louis's number of voters far outpaces its per capita, um, as you'd expect. Part of that is because of the sporting news. Um, so many members of the sporting news, because the sporting news was written into the BBWA con, uh, constitution as members are longstanding members of the BBWA who remain active around the game or in some way, um, you know, can petition the hall of fame to stay active as a voter. And so St. Louis has quite a few, you know, voters. Um, you know, the, the newspaper obviously has Rick and myself, um, you know, Bernie Miklas is a voter. Uh, there are others, um, here who have ties to the post dispatch who are voters still in St. Louis. Um, but the sporting news really bulks it up. I will also add to that 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 Yadier Molina's done okay in Queens and has made an impression. <laughs> good point. That's a <laughs> good point. Um, he he is not and and you know Yadier Molina has a reputation with the Yankee beat writers and the Yankee culture too um, because you know he's got the ties. Obviously, he's from Puerto Rico and there are a lot of Molina fans that um, there's a Venn diagram there of of people who pay attention and know what Yadier Molina has done. Um I think that um I think that being a cardinal is a booster for him. Um because the Cardinals are part of that uh baseball royalty, you know, the crown jewel organization. Sure. That that helps him. That it would be different if, you know, if Yadier Molina will just borrow a a, a recent example. It would be different if Yadier Molina were having the career that he's having, even with the championships, 
with the Colorado Rockies. Right. And then you'd be like, oh, well, you know, go to New York. That might boost his signal a little bit for the Hall of Fame. It might. It might because, you know, they'd get more attention. Um, he would do it in a different ballpark. Um, you know, he 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 uh, he'd be on TV more. You know, I mean, how long, how many, how many times have the Cardinals been on Sunday night baseball in his career? Right. How many times have, have the Rockies been on Sunday night baseball in Nolan Arenado's career? Is it one? Right. Right. I mean, is that right? Yeah. Isn't it one? I think so. I mean, and it's probably what, 45 or more for, for Molina. So, and the postseason appearances and the national TV exposure there. Yeah. That's a good point. I don't, and the world baseball classic. Yep. I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think Yadier Molina's clue, Q rating is lacking, and and I don't think that going to New York will alter um, his Hall of Fame candidacy, except for the fact that it would mean some of the papers up there would constantly refer to him as a Hall of Famer or and, future Hall of Famer, and then eventually it's a self fulfilling prophecy. And then my final question: I watched this guy play in the prime of his career. I do believe he's a Hall of Famer. Scott Rowland, you got it. And he's at roughly, I think, what, 23, 25% like in that area? But he's 35. 35, that's right. He jumped from there. Um, mm-hmm. And so he's kind of going on the Larry Walker trajectory here. And I do think younger voters are looking at sabermetrics. And I can't imagine what this guy would be like in the shift now if, if teams shifted. I mean, it'd be a 6'4, six, 6'5 six, shortstop with the range of some of the best shortstops in the game. So. Yeah. And his his numbers are really good offensively. I, I think he's a Hall of Famer. So I'm curious what you think about his trajectory in trying to get to the Hall of Fame. I think he is like the guy he sat next to many, many years ago when Larry Walker was the MVP and Scott Rowland was the Rookie of the Year. I think Scott Rowland will be a Hall of Famer. Um, just looking at these numbers um, – I think it's going to take some time like it did for Larry Walker. Right. Um, you know, the ballot is going to ease quite a bit this year. I mean, significantly. Um, and then, you know, this is the ninth year for Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Kurt Schilling, and Sammy Sosa. So they get 10 years on the ballot, 10. Um, and then after that, it thins really quickly. Um, whereas Scott Rowland is in his fourth year. Um, he is not the highest vote getter of his class. Um, the guys who are on their fourth year are Andrew Jones, Scott Rowland, and Omar Vizquel. Of that group, Vizquel has 50%. Um, I have not voted for Vizquel, so I guess I'll have to take a look as to what I'm missing that other voters are are seeing. Um, but I have voted for Andrew Jones, and I have voted for um, Scott Rowland, and I will continue to vote for them. Um you know, I guess I was one of 77 people to vote for Andrew Jones this past year. Um, but I think it's just going to take time. Um, but I think it's going to happen. I think he's going to see a steep increase within the next three years that that either could bring him in or uh, put him right on the verge. Hey, Derek, this is fun. Thanks for doing this and uh, have a great Thanksgiving. Stay safe and healthy with you and your family. And uh, I really appreciate you doing this. We'll catch up soon. Looking forward to it, Dan. Thanks. Hopefully, uh, hopefully that was a good conversation for folks to understand. And if they have other questions, I'm not really hard to find. I'm happy to talk about it. You got it. That's Derek Gould of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch.
A special thanks to Dan for letting me use the complete audio from our talk. You can find more from Dan and on his site and all of the podcasts he and Chris Raby do at Scoops with Danny Mac. That's Scoops with Danny Mac. The second part of this episode features KMOX's Kevin Keebler Wheeler. And yes, I remain the only person to call him that. Not sure why that nickname hasn't taken off. This was a tangent we took while talking about something else. Wheeler suggested that the designated hitter in the National League should be an easy call for 2021. Right away, owners and players should agree. And that's because both of them agree on the benefit of having it. While that's true, it's just not that simple. Not when it comes to negotiations. Why? That's where we begin. Well, it's so it's not that simple. Um... For one year, it's not. No, okay. For a couple uh, and a couple things there. Okay, so this is going to be on the table for the GM meetings. The GM meetings, which usually we uh, some of us reporters will go to in person, aren't happening in person. Winter meetings aren't happening in person. All this is going to be virtual. But the general managers um, and president of baseball operations have their meetings coming up here in this next week of November. Okay, this is going to be a topic discussed at that point in time because they all want clarity. Exactly like you said, they just they just want clarity. Um, and players do too, because all of a sudden you can open up the wider market to guys like Cruz, right? Like right. there are there are 15 teams automatically excluded from his free agent market because of this. Okay, yeah. The Major League Baseball has indicated to National League teams not to expect the DH, but that they're going to talk about it. Okay, so like and Roberts, uh, Dave Roberts brought this up during the World Series was they're not expecting the DH for 2021. Um, he said, but after that they are, which is the reason why after that they are is because it's a bargaining chip. And that's why the union would not so hastily give it up is because if you do that now, have you lost a little bit of a chip to play for labor Armageddon in the near future? But I thought that was a chip in favor of the players. It's a chip in favor of both sides. Right. But if the chip, if the players want the DH, Right, having it having it established two years in advance of the CBA seems like it's a more beneficial thing to the players. It feel like the the owners are the ones giving up the bargaining chip if they're going to do it here because they've been holding that back as something that they could get a concession for. Right? I don't see it that way. I I think both sides. That's what I thought was so fascinating about the DH is that both sides saw it as a chip they could play. It can't um, be for both though. I mean, it it's, it's either it's, no, but I mean like. It, if you if like if it's a if it's a positive thing for you as an owner, how does right. it count? How does it count as a give back? I mean, so, like if you so want the, okay, it, it's so, not a give back when you give it to the other side. It's something you want. So this is great. This so now we're going to get into poly side. Okay, so this is. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm going to fail. No, no, it's okay. So, so if there is a mutually agreed upon notion that is beneficial to both sides, and both sides see it as a chip, then it's what they tag along with it. Okay, so. That's that's been the crux of this is the owners, the momentum has been building for the DH and the NL and accepting it because the offense, because of how valuable pitching is and all this stuff. They want that. The union sees it as something that they can add another job. It's a higher paid job and, you know, all those things. Right. Okay. Yeah. So now it's what do they attach to it? All right. Now, the Owners will say, we want the DH and we want to maintain six years of control for free agents, but we're willing to give you this other job in another market, 15 other higher price jobs. 
and as you and we, but we're tying that to, and this is just an example, but we're tying this to maintaining the current arbitration structure, right? And the union will be like, no, we want to give you the DH, something that you want, but we want 28 man rosters so that we're getting that additional service time and you're not manipulating it so that we can have quicker access to the, to the, to the arbitration process. So do you see what I'm saying? I so do, but I'm saying like if it's a, if you if you use an analogy like they both there's a hundred dollar bill on the table and they both want the hundred dollar bill. No matter what you attach to it, you're still you're still getting the hundred dollar bill. You right? are. So, so it's are. more about it's more about that other thing than it is about the DH because those other things can be negotiated separately. If if both sides want something equally, that one right. thing equally, and. and if, if I'm if I'm a players, but they and, don't. They don't want players, that thing equally. They want that as a crowbar to other things because they know it's mutually advantageous. There's there's a difference between something they both see as mutually advantageous, all right, and something they both want. And that it's a rider that that they. It's all about the rider. It it's what comes along with it. The union would want a DH because they could then say, well, that's an additional roster spot or that's additional 15 teams. There's a lot of reasons why they would want that. Their motivation for a DH is different than the owner's motivation for a DH. And it's in those means to get to the end that the negotiation takes place. And because the DH is such a significant chip to play, same with expanded postseason, again, something both sides benefit from and both sides want, but come at it from different directions. That's why it's such a significant chip to play in negotiations because of what rides along with it. I suppose, I mean, I, it just seems like the the observation to me is it's way more beneficial to the union than it is to owners to have a DH uh, in both leagues. And maybe, maybe. It, well, again, it's, it's 15 full-time jobs. Yeah, and that means, you want that to know means, why it's beneficial to the owners? You ready for this? Is, yes. If these teams all do DHs, then all of a sudden there's a level playing field between 15 and 15 teams. Those walls come down, and owners, like there are many owners that don't want to play the Yankees every three years, get the Yankees every year or every other year. Right. And your inner league expands, and all of a sudden everybody plays everybody like in the NBA. Uh-huh. And this, the you get more of this um, merging of the leagues, which is you know under the one baseball umbrella that we keep hearing about. Okay. You know, you're going to have those walls come down, and so there is a benefit to what? What would you say? I mean, that's half the owners, right? I mean, I guess, I guess it's probably about a third of the owners, right? Yeah. Like, the Cardinals would really like to have the Yankees come to town and the Cardinals don't, you know, they can sell tickets, they can move tickets, but they really would like the Yankees to come to town because they know that's going to be 44,000 people in the seats. Yep. That's you good. Know? Yeah, for sure. And they, they have now been getting the Yankees every six years. Mm-hmm. So the DH just, is a doorway I, to that. Sure. I, I guess, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with any of that. I just wonder, you know, the difference between, you know, an extra five or six thousand in attendance compared to you know multi-year contracts for expensive players and all of that. It just, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, know. I, 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 mean, I see exactly what you're. I, see, I, mean, I see exactly what you're saying. It's just that 
it, the, 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 the tangible, knowable benefit of the DH is more obvious on the player side. Correct. It's, it's a little more strung out and dependent upon other things on the ownership side. That's correct. But that's where the negotiations happen. They happen in the nuances, in the fringes. I guess you know, this is why I'm not a negotiator. Yeah. I um, mean, I just, you know, I, having spent a lot of time, well, I, I'm invested in this because the last time they negotiated a CBA as the president of the Riders Association, I had to be an advocate for access. Right. In something that I, and I had no seat at the table. Right. So it was a very, it was a good learning process for how do I talk to them about the benefit of access so that it's a mutually agreeable thing and right, not a right. bargaining chip that, you know, owners willingly give up. Like if right, players right. say, Hey, you know, we really would like the clubhouse closed and the owner's like, cool, can we have a salary cap? <laughs> <Can> we <do that? laughs> and players like, man, we really want the media out of there. Yeah. Have your salary cap. Then, you know, I mean, that, you know, I mean, that's an extreme example, but yeah, yeah. you know, if they're like, Hey, we want, you know, we want six more off days in the season. And the owners are like, man, we can't do that with the current schedule that we have. And the players go, okay, then we want the clubhouse closed to the media. Right. You know, so that we get at least some kind of, you know, I had to find a way to make the, the access part of it mutually agreeable so that it didn't become this element. And I don't know whether I did or not. The access did not change in the last CBA. And, right. um, but I, but my, my reason for bringing that up is because I had to, I learned a lot just in communication with what they value and how they talk about things, how they go about negotiations and how there are times where they agree on something, but it's not so simple as saying, Oh, we agree on this. Let's move it aside. Fair enough. Because there are things there. It's like an octopus, right? We really like the octopus, but man, we don't want two of those eight legs. You know, can we talk about, you know, six? Well, why don't we just lop off the legs and negotiate those later? Well, then it's not an octopus, you know? Right. And so it's that kind of thing where that's just part of negotiation. Again, a special thanks to Dan McLaughlin and Kevin Wheeler for joining me on the podcast, not just for these conversations, but throughout the year. They've they've been regular guests on BPIB, and that you know is very much appreciated. And you know what? By saying that now, I can set up to ask them to be guests next year as well for 2021. That's negotiations. The best podcast in baseball is available wherever you get your podcast. That includes iTunes, where you can listen to individual episodes, download individual episodes. You can rate and review the podcast. I do really appreciate the reviews. They help give the podcast direction because this podcast does not exist without the community of people out there listening to it. You can also subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. Subscriptions make the sponsorships possible, and sponsorships make the weekly podcast possible. The sponsor for the best podcast in baseball is Closet by Design of St. Louis. Get organized with Closet by Design of St. Louis. Update your closets, garage, office, pantry, and more. Call 1-800-BY-DESIGN. That's 1-800-B-Y-D-E-S-I-G-N. Closet by Design of St. Louis, the official sponsor of the best podcast in baseball. You can find the best podcast in baseball along with all of our constant Cardinals coverage at stltoday.com and in the pages of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. There are currently subscription deals running at stltoday.com for the coming year. You can also check out the story I did about what it was like to be on the road this past year, not just following the Cardinals around, tracing the lines throughout our country, driving more than 7,100 miles and visiting 14 states and getting to see the American League Central and National League Central from street level, covering baseball in empty ballparks and spending 
a lot of time wearing a mask, whether I was at a hotel, whether I was quarantined, whether I was trying to find a place that had a really slick curbside pickup. One of the places I went was a fried chicken place recommended by Cardinals pitching coach Mike Maddox. That story is also available at stltoday.com along with videos from columnist Benjamin Hockman and, of course, the podcast from Ben Fredrickson and Dave Matter on Mizzou, the chats that are there, and this past week, Ben Fredrickson at stltoday.com looks at some of the holiday specials that could be available in Major League Baseball's free agent market. The best podcast in baseball will be back with you next week. Hope you had a healthy and safe holiday. Talk to you soon. Thank you.